Welcome everyone to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? Doing good, man. I just got back from uh, from Yosemite and it was an absolutely incredible trip. Uh, normally in June, Yosemite is just absolutely jammed full of tourists. It's actually incredibly unpleasant. But because of COVID, this was the very first weekend that it was open and it was very, very limited access and my girlfriend's mom had a reservation had everything locked down it was it was incredible i just showed up and it was everything was set and yosemite was completely empty uh, i i you know kind of had a vip treatment that is incredible i'm super duper jealous the so corona is just turning the whole world upside down which means that like you know most things are bad but like then if you are if you search for it if you look for it there are some good things that that you can do um Silver yes. linings for sure. I'm, I'm glad you found one. That sounds like a fantastic experience. Well, this episode of POV Crypto is with the great Pierre Richard. This was from last week's Bitcoin double header between, uh, with him and Matt O'Dell. Uh, this was a really good episode. We talk about a wide range of things. Uh, we jump right into Bitcoin versus Ethereum, but then we expand the conversation more to what's happening macro. Uh, Pierre talks a lot about like what's the purpose of cash. Cash is a technology um, what does bringing cash, a good cash back into the world in the form of Bitcoin look like and how does that change society? Then we talk about why USD is racist, a very timely topic. Um, and obviously all of us here are trying to uh, replace the existing infrastructure, the existing power structure uh, with more fair systems. And uh, Pierre really nails down why that's so important and how that's going to benefit everyone. Yeah, so I initially uh, reached out to Christian to get Pierre on the pod after Pierre made this tweet about how Ethereum fundamentals just couldn't be like worse. And so I responded to Pierre saying, you know, Pierre, I'm not really too sure that I think that you understand what Ethereum fundamentals actually are. We didn't really get into the details specifics of like what I think Ethereum fundamentals are and and what he thinks about them, but more what he thinks about the fundamentals of money are. in specific specifically in relation to risk uh and so i thought that uh perspective was i think new to pov crypto uh and pierre did a pretty good uh, pretty good job discussing the relationship of risk and money and then uh you know if if you are following the space you can imply that to how he thinks about ethereum so pretty good conversation pierre definitely has a nuanced at least a nuanced idea of uh what is happening in the ethereum space even though he might not know the kind of day-to-day details. Uh, I'm sure that him being at Kraken and being the Bitcoin strategist at Kraken uh, helps him see into the goings-on of a lot of different altcoins too. So uh, while he's definitely big on Bitcoin, I definitely, you know, don't think he's ignorant to what's happening uh, in the greater crypto space. Before the episode though, let's talk about our sponsor. Uh, These guys have been sponsoring us for a little bit now. It is Alto IRA. Alto IRA started in 2018 with a mission to empower people to take control of their financial future. They offer a ton of different alternative assets inside of a tax beneficiary uh, IRA account. And one of their newest... uh, types of assets is cryptocurrencies. They have a crypto IRA and it is with a partnership with Coinbase. Uh, So you can use Coinbase to custody and trade your favorite uh, cryptos, Bitcoin, Ethereum, whatever Coinbase uh, offers. 
and you get beneficial tax treatment. So for the traders out there, uh, this may be a good way for you to save a ton of money on your daily trades or whatever, because in an IRA, all of that stuff is tax deferred and you don't really have to worry about the short-term capital gains in the same way. Uh, so learn more, go to altoira.com backslash POV crypto. Make sure to use the backslash POV crypto so they know we sent you there. And without further ado, let's just go right into the episode with Pierre Richard. All right, guys, I'm super excited to bring you the first of a Bitcoin double header today on POV crypto. We are honored to have the brilliant Pierre Richard on the podcast. Pierre, how's it going, man? Welcome to POV Crypto. It's going very well. Thanks for having me. Uh, huge fan, um, longtime listener, first-time guest, I think, and uh, excited to talk with you guys. Pierre, uh, I, th I think the very earliest impetus for getting you on this podcast was because uh, you tweeted out a tweet about how Ethereum's fundamentals were something along the lines of atrocious. And so that's when I messaged so Christian. we're just going like, to get into it right away, huh? We're yeah, just, well, that's what I was going to propose. Warm there, up. There, we're there, just going to start I think we actually will kick that conversation down the line because uh, I, I've been harping on this line of, of questions that I think is relevant to every single guest. But I think that'll uh, be a, a good uh, prelude for that conversation later. And, and this, line, this question, line of questioning is like, these uh, these crypto systems, the Bitcoin, Ethereum, whatever, they are digital nations of source, or they are an in instantiation of values. And uh, to what degree that these digital nations uh, reflect the values of its constituents is a symptom of its uh, or a, a prelude of its success. So, what do you think Bitcoin's values are, and then also what are your values, and how does how does Bitcoin reflect them or, or how do you resonate with Bitcoin, uh, the, the Bitcoin nation? When there's conversations amongst Bitcoin developers that I've uh, eavesdropped on, whether it's on the mailing list or in pull requests or uh, in person, there is an emphasis on um, what, what I would identify as, even if they're not consciously aware of this, is about minimizing uncertainty. Um, and I I, I don't see that same uh, interest in other uh, crypto nations. Uh, and I think that, you know, it would be it would just be like a, a differentiator uh, and a competitive advantage it, if it wasn't for the fact that I think the purpose of money is actually to to minimize uncertainty and, to, and you want to have a monetary system with minimal uncertainty. And so then it actually goes from just being like, um, let's call it a narrative or just like a, uh, a, a little competitive moat um, and a, a, a slogan to actually uh, being what will allow Bitcoin to, to be the premier, you know, monetary asset of the 21st century and um, essentially be able to capture most of the value and accrue most of the value uh, in, in this new world. So can you give us the elevator pitch for why uh, re removing or reducing uncertainty is such a valuable thing? The, the, the other uh, kind of contingency is risk and uh, risk you can insure against. So, for example, in the Bitcoin world, there's two major risks. Uh, the first one is the exchange rate risk. Uh, so you can hedge against that uh, using derivatives like, uh, you know, buying a put option or selling a futures contract. Then uh, the other risk is the transaction fee rate risk. Uh, so like in 
December of 2017. We saw it went up to like $35. And uh, there's other, you know, you can hedge that as well. Um, and you know, I, there's a lot of debate about this among Bitcoiners. I think the best way to hedge it is with uh, lightning contracts. And so, uh, you know, opening a lightning channel gives you the ability to send value, but you're not obligated to send value either. So it's kind of like an, an option contract like that. And then you can be able to time when you're actually going to pay transaction fee rates, um, you know, unless there's some boundary conditions of someone trying to scam you or whatever, but that hasn't really been a thing yet. So, yeah, so those are the the risks I see in the Bitcoin system. There's a few other ones we could talk about. I think the cost of running a full node actually is more of a risk than an uncertainty. And then if we think more broadly about, you know, why people hold money, people hold money because they're trying to hedge against cash flow risk or sorry, sorry, cash flow uncertainty. Although they can also hold money to, to, to self-insure uh, and, and to self-insure against um, uh, risks. But uh, in terms of cash flow uncertainty, like there's the negative sense of it of, oh, you know, what if there's coronavirus and your revenue plunges 80%? There's also the positive sense of it of, you don't actually know what investment opportunities there are going to be in the future. Uh, and and in, in no case would anyone ever insure you for that, right? Like, there's no insurance policy of like, well, I don't know when my brother-in-law is going to have an awesome business idea and I'm going to want to give him seed financing. Like you, you can't buy a contract for that because it's not quantifiable and it, there's not really any way of uh, having some actuarial uh, you know, conditions on it. So um, that's where you really, you do have to hold cash. Um, and then, you know, in terms of holding cash, there's, for holding cash specifically, there's two Two properties you want to look for. One is seizure resistance. So I actually think that Ethereum and Bitcoin are, you know, and, and really any cryptocurrency that uses private keys and meets some kind of threshold for decentralization, I won't open that can of worms, but is seizure resistant, right? So a, a third party it, it can't just arbitrarily go in and change the ledger and, and see someone's coins. Um, I know that we could talk about the DAO fork and stuff, but let's just table that discussion for another time. And then there's also the, uh, the, the sound money part, right? Because the other way someone can seize your cash is by diluting you out um, by just issuing more units. And there I, I, I do see a lot of debate about essentially my view is that the uh, Ethereum community is okay with having more uncertainty about monetary policy if it means that it's a way of, of, of mitigating the transaction finality uh, risk, because that actually is a risk that's actually quantifiable. Although I don't think that we have enough data yet to actually know what the cost of what, you know, what is the size of this contingency? What's the actual va- value of the liability? We could talk about uh, double spends and whatnot and kind of what are the worst case scenarios from a transaction finality perspective, but that essentially, you know, because Ethereum has a more discretionary monetary policy, I'm not saying it's, it is, I, I don't think Ethereum's monetary policy is arbitrary, um, right? There are, there are, there's some deliberation of, about it and th- thought behind it. And it's, it is more decentralized uh, than the Federal Reserve's monetary policy. Uh, so kudos to you guys. I, I still think that basically Bitcoin's monetary policy is trying to minimize uncertainty and um, whatever risks come along with that are just uh, on the users of the system to hedge for themselves. 
uh, and they can't externalize that cost on on all the other users the way that I think the Ethereum system does, um, and also open itself up to social attacks, frankly. I think that Ethereum will get inflationary social attacks uh, because of the uh, embracing of greater uncertainty on monetary policy. So that's on holding. We can also talk, and we kind of did talk about on the sending and receiving part, right? Like, so I think Ethereum and Bitcoin are equally permissionless, you know, in, in terms of just like creating an Ethereum wallet or creating a Bitcoin wallet. It's basically the same. You don't, you don't need to get anyone's permission. Okay, maybe that will change with staking, right? We can start thinking about, okay, is staking less permissionless than mining? We could argue over that. On the censorship resistance, this goes back to the transaction finality conversation. And, uh, you know, uh, I think that Ethereum actually has uh, pretty sizable transaction fees at this point. Uh, so uh, maybe it is uh, doing pretty well on censorship resistance. But if you look at kind of the what's the cost of renting hash rate to go do a double spend, I, I think that both Bitcoin and Ethereum have a high enough cost that it's just not a practical problem day to day. That may change in the future, but uh, right now, like there's diminishing marginal um, benefit to having higher, let's call it, you know, transaction finality spend or or subsidization. So, I really do think that it comes down to uh, competing monetary policies uh, because the other three factors are close enough to each other that it's not really a thing, and that's on the fundamentals. So, you know, you could certainly argue that my statement about Ethereum's fundamentals was bombastic and way over the top, given that I'm basically just saying that its monetary policy is, is worse than Bitcoin's. Like that's, that's something that I'll unequivocally say. And uh, yeah, I'll just, uh, I'll let you guys respond to that. I guess we are just hopping right into this now, aren't we? Um, yeah, I guess so. We can't help ourselves. <laughs> so, and this is something I, I see that a lot of Bitcoiners uh, do is they, they use a Bitcoiner frame of mind to evaluate Ethereum when they should be using an Ethereum state of mind to evaluate Ethereum. Uh, and it's kind of like that old parable of like, well, you have like a, a monkey and a fish and then you tell them to climb a tree and well, th that fish is going to lose. But, you know, you go tell it to go swim the ocean and, and it's something else. And uh, Andreas Antonopoulos has always been like this trying like this peacekeeper of sorts where he says like Bitcoin and Ethereum, one's a lion and the other's a shark and they live in different domains. And me and Christian were actually harping on this pretty early in POV, where we were actually kind of uh, uh, going over, the, the, stating the opposite, where it's more along the lines of, well, like Bitcoin is in America and Ethereum is in uh, Asia. And at some point, these, th these systems, these organisms are going to grow and eventually collide with each other. Now, I've, I've kind of been of the opinion that it's a little bit of a mix of both. And when Bitcoiners take the, the hard money, 21 million finite limit, fundamental and they lay it on bitcoin or they lay it on ethereum ethereum just absolutely fails but i would contend that that's not actually what ethereum's fundamentals are um so before before i kind of give my pitch as to what ethereum's fundamentals are i was what i want to ask you what do you from what do you think from the ethereum point of view do you think that our fundamentals of ethereum are yeah, so I mean, first of all, I do want to give give my my Bitcoiner point of view. The the writings about cash being uh, the least uncertain asset precede Bitcoin, precede frankly fiat currencies. Like even under gold, this um, uh, because this this dates back to you know some some old Austrian economists back in the 
or, or late 19th century, early 20th century, once, once they kind of figured out two different things, um, the, the marginal theory of value uh, and subjectivism, um, and then also the uh, structure of, or the way to define the market for monies. Um, because one of the fallacies in the market for money uh, has always been that the supply of money is basically a flow um, when, uh, and then Wittgenstein, I think in like 1880 or 1890 was like, no, no, no guys, the supply of money is a stock. It's basically the sum of everyone's cash balances is the, the supply of money. So in any case, uh, you know, the, the, in terms of uncertainty, you know, that's something that has been talked about long before Bitcoin, um, and so if if Ethereans concede that uncertainty is not what they're maximizing, right, they're not optimizing for that, um, then I think they, they also concede that um, Ethereum is just uh, not going to be able to compete, you know, on as, as money. Now, I think that from the Ethereum perspective is that there are actually not mitigations, but trade-offs where basically... Uh, what Ethereum allows you to do is uh, reduce other uncertainties, right? So in terms of, for example, financial intermediation, when they talk about DeFi, what they're talking about is, hey, if we automate certain base functionalities of the financial system, uh, that we can actually uh, reduce uncertainty further up the stack. And that actually um, makes up for the uncertainty that we've introduced in uh, in the monetary layer, uh, and so Bitcoiners are satisfied with CFI, you know, centralized finance, and, and which has a lot of uncertainty with it, right? That's why, and and we'll get into the banking layer, right, the borrowing and the lending part, because um, that's definitely a hot topic, even just amongst Bitcoiners, right? You don't even have to start. Uh, you don't have to bring in DeFi to the mix for Bitcoiners to disagree on on money and banking. That's the argument I see it from the Ethereum perspective is that, well, yeah, sure, there are tr- trade-offs at the base layer. Bigger picture, if we zoom out, uh, the, the Ethereum ecosystem is at the end of the day going to have b- better uh, properties than the Bitcoin system, um, you know, narrowly focusing on monetary issues. Yeah, that's actually, uh, I, I would pretty much agree, agree with everything. And, and then I would l- like to throw in one distinction where I say, um, it, it, there's this ETH is money camp, right? Like me, Ryan Sean Adams, Anthony Cesano, Eric Connor, right, right. Uh, yeah, you guys copy paste my tweets and replace uh, Bitcoin with Ethereum. I've seen. Oh, that. do we? I thought no, it was. Uh, I I'm thought kidding. it was uh, Bit Bitstein's tweets that that we were that were his meme <laughs> strategy. He just kind of fed fed us that meme strategy, and then we took it and ran with it. Or and it's so, pomp. You after know, crying about it, also huge influence. <laughs> uh, but I personally am not. Well, I mean, I'll shout it. But like the ETH is money meme, I think is really overly reductive and. Uh, a not nuance and leaves a large part of what really is about Ethereum out of the picture because what else can you do with three words? Um, to me, it, Ether is upside exposure to the economy of Ethereum. And so like it, at the base layer, you're totally right. The future supply of all Ether is unknown. But what is known is that it, with the growth of the, the Ethereum economy, it's going to be scarce. And not only is it going to be scarce, but it could actually 
increase its scarcity over time, not through only just an increase of demand, but also a reduction in supply because of the EIP-1559, which reduces supply as a function of the economic activity on Ethereum. It, it, uh, are you familiar with that little mechanism? Uh, I'm not. No, not at all. I try to not pay attention to it. <laughs> so it basically every a small bit of a transaction fee is burned in every single transaction. And okay. that sounds is like XRP. That's what the... That's is what is that what XRP has in it? I, yep. I've always wondered about that. That's always the, the, the shill talking point. Yeah, yeah. So the difference is that um, the amount that is burned is determined in a way that mimics Bitcoin's difficulty adjustment. Adjustment. So it, it is not a fixed number. It's not an arbitrary number. It's based off of the congestion in the blockchain. Uh, and then also, um, and so that scales up and down. The burn rate goes up and down as there is uh, demand for block space. And then on the other side of things, there is issuance, right? Just to put, put security first. Because like Bitcoin is a blockchain that serves BTC, the asset, but Ether is the asset that serves Ethereum, the blockchain. And so we put security before we put the primacy of the supply of the asset. And so the way that we do that is we have inflows of issuance and then outflows of, of burning. And then if, if the Ethereum economy grows, burning goes up, 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 up. And, and so I I've consider Ether, Ether is money for ethereum like it's and it follows the same pattern as like company script right where like old coal mining towns in the 50s would like issue their own local currency and then they would also set up a general store and like charge you rent and give you your groceries etc do your health care but you have to pay pay the company and their money that they create the only and and the, the reason why this is cool is because ethereum can scale out to the entire globe and can it We'll get to that later. And, uh, and, uh, and you, the companies in these 50, 1950s coal mining towns didn't really ever give the people the ability to opt out, whereas Ethereum is entirely an opt-in system. So like it's not coercive, right? It's not capturing you. It's, uh, it's, you're opting into this system. And so like where I would call Bitcoin as the Bitcoin values, the totem that, that Bitcoiners rally around is as Bitcoin as 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 zero risk money or risk removed money whereas ethereum it's a little bit more nebulous but the values of ethereum are that the asset uh, gives you upside to every other business economy application whatever on ethereum you get upside exposure to everything which makes ether which is what i've been harping on is ether is actually closer to equity of ethereum than it is uh, a money of ethereum your thoughts um, well, I, 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 Christian, you, do you want to give your thoughts? I feel like we haven't let you talk yet. I mean, no, it's been, it's been funny hearing you kind of break down these mental models. Robert Breedlove said this on our interview yesterday that is yet to be released, but the problem with Ether is it's based on theoreticals of what will happen in the best case scenario. Like Ether becomes the world economy, therefore ETH is money. And I just, I don't think that the ETH ecosystem is addressing uh, that many needs. And then on top of that, the transaction fees that are accrued from the ETH ecosystem are almost primarily from stable coins, which is great, but that doesn't help establish Ether as a monetary standard. Every single fee for Bitcoin is establishing Bitcoin block after block as an additional monetary standard. There are no other monetary standards being established there. So, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm just skeptical that little economy can blossom into a world economy and we're already seeing Bitcoin's monetary dominance from CFI starting to bleed into DeFi. 
Um, uh, so we're seeing Bitcoin continue to flex its monetary dominance. Yeah, I, I guess my, my, my view in terms of um, kind of the, the value add of layers above the monetary system, right, of in the financial system, uh, borrowing and lending, and um, the Ethereum's, uh, you know, smart contracting ability to uh, mitigate uncertainty at that layer um, or, or minimize it is actually not material to the users in the sense that the risks associated with borrowing and lending are actually much greater than the uncertainties. And so if you think about kind of the, the whole range of contingencies you have when, when lending or borrowing money, the risks might be 90% and the uncertainties are 10%. So if your system is saying, hey, we can lower the uncertainty from you know, 10% to 5%, okay, that's great. You, know, you are uh, narrowing the range of outcomes, but you're not addressing um, the risk side of credit risk, counterparty risk. And then the, you know, the way that gets addressed, uh, and this is true in DeFi and in CeFi, is over collateralization. Uh, and so that's how, so then, okay, then you, you get into issues of capital efficiency, right? Of, okay, well, I'm trying to borrow a dollar and I have to put a dollar and a half in. And that obviously, I like, I don't think that's scalable. I think ultimately um, we're, we're going to have to uh, evolve from having just over collateralized credit in, in let's call it the, the crypto economy to, to actually having... Um, you know, less than current collateralized credit and uh, more uh, more credit risk in the sense of unsecured credit, right? Um, now, we can launch into a conversation about fractional reserve banking and all of that at this point, but I do want to pause here and just say, like, that's, that's why I think it's okay for uh, Bitcoin to um, sacrifice you know, its ability to, to, to build an on-chain uh, credit system, if that means that we can then have a monetary system, right, for, for the actual transfer of the underlying collateral, have less uncertainty. And for the collateral itself to be of, of higher quality uh, because it has a better monetary policy. And, you know, you, you talked about the, the, mechan- the burn mechanism there. Like, every time you add a little complexity like that, the uncertainty increases tenfold. Uh, and so I think that, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's not, it, what you described, it's not a system where I would put a material amount of money into. Uh, it just sounds like uh, there's, there's a lot of moving parts. And uh, the more moving parts you have, the more surface area you have for things to go wrong. I, w- I would contend that it's swapping out one moving part for another moving part. Uh, the the auction is a moving part uh, and it's an, an inefficient one. Uh, and it, it, we're swapping it out. So we're making, we're doing something that is moving while we swap out one moving part for another moving part. And it is also something untested. Um, but so is the ethos of all of Ethereum, right? Like that, there's an untested theoretical mechanism. Let's throw it in there and, and test the theory and then, and then we'll plug it in if it works. And, and I don't think Ethereum has the option not to, right? Because if it doesn't do that, well, then it's every time it doesn't integrate something that it, it that the Ethereum researchers thinks that it is theoretically the right thing to do, then it's just closer to Bitcoin, right? So, like, we actually need to need to move further and further away to Bitcoin to separate and and uh, differentiate 
these two these two systems. That's that sounds like a a monetary death sentence, but <laughs> eventually, because eventually you're just the Federal Reserve, right? Like, okay, we move, we've no. moved as far away as possible from Bitcoin, and now we're just a decentralized uh, fiat system with lots of inflation, lots of politics, and uh, it's not fun anymore. No, I, okay. So in in that regard, I'm talking about specifically the design philosophy of the of the blockchain itself, but not it, when you enter into the world of digital currencies and, and digital nations. Like there are some things that must be true, or else you fail. And one of those things I would contend is the fact that every single crypto system needs to run on Austrian economics. There's no way for a Keynesian blockchain to work because Austrian economics scales because governance well, at you need to minimize uncertainty then right mm-hmm. like that's just uh, and and you could you could minimize uncertainty differently right mm-hmm. than, than bitcoin does i still think that you could have an approach where you're like hey we're gunning for number one okay we still want to flip in bitcoin uh we're not just gonna mm-hmm. like do engineering for engineering's sake but we're going to do things a little differently. Like sometimes I feel like what you're describing is, hey, we're going to introduce uncertainty here because it's different than Bitcoin. So maybe no, we'll be able- that's not. Yeah. That, if I if I meant if I yeah. communicated that, I didn't mean to. Uh, <laughs> that's all right. I'm just I'm, I'm mischaracterizing it to, to <laughs> straw man a little. <laughs> One thing you said is that, uh, you know, these DeFi protocols don't scale uh, uh, because. Because you know, for for every uh, dollar you want to borrow, you got to you got to drop in a dollar and a half, uh, and I think that's actually so. It's not it doesn't scale with capital. It's not it's capital intensive, but the but because of that, it turns these DeFi protocols away from being like a centralized company where you sign up with an, an email and password and, and make an account. I feel like that's unscalable. And what is not what is totally scalable is the fact that the over collateralization of these DeFi applications, which are themselves protocols, right? So like Ethereum is a protocol for protocols. Every contract on Ethereum is a protocol. And so uh, you make this protocol and this one protocol is MakerDAO. And now that's it. That's its own protocol. And because of the over collateralization, you can actually serve the whole world because you know of open permissionless borderless systems the only cost to that is the over collateralization and so for at the cost of extra collateral you get the scale of everyone in on on planet earth i i would just question that this is something that everyone on planet earth needs in the sense that if we think about why why people do borrow mm-hmm. um it, it it is because they did, were not holding enough cash uh, mm-hmm. and they had an unexpected cash flow uh, and they need to uh, borrow and lever up and it's going to cost them to, to do that. And so I, I guess from my point of view of a, a world where let's say, you know, post hyper Bitcoinization, people are just holding uh, so much Bitcoin, uh, you know, in real terms, uh, obviously there can only be 21 million Bitcoin. So we're just talking about uh, in, in real terms, in terms of its purchasing power, um, that the the lending market uh, is actually, it it is of such small scale. Uh, mm-hmm. It has so few players that it's not really a, a, a problem for folks. Now, you know, then we, we could just have a small scale peer-to-peer lending for, you know, your family members or your friends and you just kind of just want to you they, they need a little bailout here and there because they had an unexpected expense but that generally speaking um we don't need to resort to credit because 
we're holding enough cash. I think that we're living in this world today where there's this anomaly of we're holding as little cash as possible because of inflation. So when we have an unexpected expense, oh, well, we have a credit card here that has a line of credit that we're going to be able to tap into um, or we're going to be able to get, you know, into medical debt or a mortgage or a car loan. And all of these products are essentially being subsidized by this system that is punishing savings. It's punishing holding cash. And the, it's very hard to map that onto the Bitcoin world. And people are like, well, how are you going to get a 30-year mortgage for 2% in a Bitcoin <laughs> world? It's like, well, that's that's just not you what you're going to need yeah. to do. Like right. your, your, your cash balances are going to be much more proportionate to the house costs, right? Like mm -hmm. you might actually just be able to buy, buy a house cash and it's just not like a huge thing nowadays that's inconceivable because of, of uh, all the incentives that have been at play for decades now. Um, yeah. I feel like this is something that people that aren't Bitcoin maximalists haven't quite bought into is Bitcoin is the whole idea is about let's reprice the world in sats. Like we need to move value to a stable, predictable measuring system. And we don't need all these finance games to make things work. And I've, I've been levying this criticism on DeFi for a long time. I've been calling it skeuomorphic. I think finance, like making it decentralized is skeuomorphic. And I think that Parker's nailed it in saying that Bitcoin's about de-financializing the world not necessarily decentralizing finance. Well, I would say that that's exactly uh, the ethos of DeFi falls right in line with that, right? Like, and, and that this goes back to Austrian economics where like the over collateralization of all financial activity does pop that bubble to a pretty significant degree. Like the, like you, it's in order to get a loan for your house. The fact that you have to put up sufficient amount of collateral is going to do something in that same regard. And like, even in a hyper Bitcoin, hyper Bitcoinization world, there's still going to be financial tools. They will be, they will still need to borrow and lend and, and there will still be, you know, markets around that. They will just not be so incredibly inflated like they are today. And I think that in that world, the, the, where we start in the hyper Bitcoinization world, where borrowers and lenders are borrowing Bitcoin and lending Bitcoin, you're still, you're going to look a lot like the DeFi world. Which is, and this is what I think Nick Carter often says with like the world of free banking, which is just like, that's DeFi, but with banks. And so I think these are actually really similar things. It's just one is a protocol uh, and the other are companies. I mean, I definitely agree that, that there will still be financial intermediation uh, with Bitcoin. And so this is where I think uh, Bitcoiners start arguing with each other uh, and not just with Ethereans is over... Um, like okay, let's put it. Let's put aside C5 versus DeFi, and let's just talk about financial intermediation in general. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I kind of see it as like there's two parts to to this puzzle. One is the transition period between fiat and Bitcoin, um, and then the second part is the post hyper Bitcoinization world. Mm -hmm. um, and so, like in the transitionary period. And this is actually true of, of any kind of uh, currency, uh, I, I want to say collapse, but let's call it a transition. Any time that we've gone from one currency to another, the general reason why that happens is that speculators borrow the cheap currency 
in order to sell it in exchange for the hard currency. Um, and so essentially leveraging up. And they, they do that by borrowing from the cheap currency's financial system. Um, and the reason that they're able to do that is generally because the issuer of that currency is, is willing to debase the currency, right? And, and they're, they're, they're actually, and this is like a classic speculative attack description, that's not sustainable in the sense that ultimately you, you have this reinforcing cycle where the issuer of the cheap currency is issuing more and more uh, in, in, to, to these borrowers. Uh, and then eventually uh, you have like the momentum traders piling in and you can just look at it as like animal spirits, bulls and bears, where it does go parabolic. Uh, and then you have a currency crisis uh, where the cheap currency is collapsing and nobody wants to hold it anymore. Uh, and either the issuer s- stops their game and goes into reverse mode of actually we're going to increase interest rates and we're going to, um, you know, destroy currency, uh, destroy our currency in the sense of, you know, decreasing its supply. Then that squeezes, squeezes the speculators and they have to unwind their carry trade. So I think that's actually what's going on when we think about Bitcoin's financial intermediation is that people are borrowing USD, they're borrowing euros, um, and they're leveraging up to buy Bitcoin and Ethereum you know, or, or any cryptocurrency. Because the crazy part is that almost every cryptocurrency has a better monetary policy than fiat. So when we think about shitcoins, like the incumbents are really bottom of the barrel of you know, from, from that perspective, uh, not, not, not even to get into like them censoring their payment systems or doing stuff like that. And I have to sometimes remind Bitcoiners of like, that's Bitcoin's competing with the USD. Like, uh, talking about Bitcoin versus Ethereum is kind of, in my mind, a very tertiary, you know, ancillary debate. Uh, as well as niche, right? Yeah, but um, I think that, okay, so to get back on track with, uh, so that's kind of the transition part, is that I think that, uh, and now actually what gets used as collateral for this is irrelevant. So uh, you could be literally taking out a mortgage on your house to buy Bitcoin, right? And in which case your house is being used as collateral. People advise against that. I advise against that because you you don't want to lose your house. (laughs) But uh, if you... Uh, use, for example, a credit card. Like I've heard of people using credit cards to leverage up to buy Bitcoin. But what is starting to appear in greater and greater quantities is people actually using Bitcoin as collateral in order to buy Bitcoin. Why are they doing that? Well, because Bitcoin is excellent collateral uh, just due to its properties. We're seeing, I think, the same thing with with Ethereum. Um, And that to me is what the growth of financial intermediation uh, right now represents. It's not so much that there's, you know, people wanting to put Bitcoin to work, right, of people wanting to lend out Bitcoin and then there being people who want to borrow Bitcoin. I think that there's people who want to borrow USD in order to buy Bitcoin. And if you think about even even a financial institution that is borrowing Bitcoin from Bitcoiners, I think that if they're smart, what they're doing is that they're hedging the currency risk and turning it into a synthetic USD liability by selling Bitcoin futures um, or buying Bitcoin futures, whatever the direction is. Um, but essentially, you know, they, they borrow the Bitcoin, 
they sell the Bitcoin for USD um, and then they buy a Bitcoin future so that they know that they're going to be able to get a fixed rate uh, for the Bitcoin exchange rate in the future. That allows them to, in a th- synthetic manner, borrow USD. And then on the other side of the balance sheet, then they can go lend that USD to people who have uh, Bitcoin deposited at their financial institution as collateral. Now, I won't get into the rehypothecation debate about like, oh, well, what if they lend out the collateral and whatnot? That's an interesting debate, though. So I think that even in the case of people lending out Bitcoin, uh, at the end of the day, now, there might be financial institutions that are not doing that, right? Let's say they are actually borrowing Bitcoin and they're not hedging themselves. I think that's going to blow up. You know, that that blows up when uh, the uh, Bitcoin price goes parabolic. Uh, and they're, now they're not able to, uh, you know, pay off those those Bitcoin denominated loans. And we've seen that happen in Bitcoin's history before. Um, now, hopefully people have learned from it and are managing the risk properly. And in any, in any uh, financial intermediation market, you're going to have financial institutions at the margin that, for whatever reason, were incapable of managing the risk and they go bust. And then they get acquired by other players in the space. And I don't see it as like being some kind of like systemic problem or anything like that. Um, as long as there's no lender of last resort there to do bailouts, I actually just don't think that systemic risk uh, ever really builds up. Um, and people, people who describe it as systemic risk are the ones who need the bailout, right? They're, they're the ones who are like, oh, guys, this problem affects everyone. It's like, no, actually, I think it's your personal problem. And we're 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 going to come in like vultures afterwards and pick apart the pieces. But right now we don't need to to bail you out. That's kind of a self-serving argument of like, if you don't bail me out, then it's going to be bad for you. Like, mm, no, probably not. We're we're probably holding enough enough cash that it's not going to be a problem, and we'll just you know buy you in bankruptcy. Um, and so and it's funny because like you see this like with the coronavirus where people are like, oh, our our cruise ship company is systemically important to the economy. It's like. No, it's not. I'm sorry. It's really not. Uh, and, uh, you know, someone will buy your assets out of bankruptcy and liquidation and we don't need to bail out the equity holders. Anyway, so that's kind of in the transitionary period. And then post hyper Bitcoinization, I still do think that there is financial intermediation. Um, now, what I think it looks like is a lot more equity investing and a lot less debt. Right. Uh, And so if you think about the capital structure of the economy as a whole, there's actually there's no difference between equity financing and debt financing uh, from kind of just like a macro perspective. The only thing that tilts you in one direction or another are tax treatment. Right. So are you able to deduct interest expense or do dividends get taxed? Um, So if we equalize that, then we can stop subsidizing debt. And then the other part is. is there a mechanism mechanism in the uh, in the monetary system where people can create new money only under specific circumstances of them lending it out right and that's what like that to me is what fractional reserve banking system is is in this system you're allowed to create money but only if you're doing this as part of lending 
which is arbitrary, right? Like, why wouldn't you be able to do it as part of equity investing? <laughs> why, why can a commercial bank not go and buy stocks if they think stocks are undervalued relative to uh, credit risk in the rest of the economy? Right, so, because it's still it, supposed so, to just, at the end of the day, throw money into the economy either way, right? Yeah, and it's, it's an investing cash outflow, and it has a certain expected ret- rate of return. It has a certain NPV, right? It's like, it has a certain expected future cash flows. And it's irrelevant whether it's fixed income or equity. It's just a matter of like, which is overvalued at that particular point in the capital markets. But I think that due to political uh, lobbying, right, uh, and and also to a kind of historical path dependency uh, with how the monetary system evolved over time, that uh, there's this giant, like, there's this giant area of regulatory capture where, you know, certain financial institutions are able to say, hey, we're able to create money. Uh, you're going to create a regulatory framework around that and we're going to legislate around it so it doesn't get out of control. Right? That's historically been the problem there is that it gets out of control. And, uh, you know, oh, well, we don't want you gambling on the stock market, you know. OK, so it should only be like credit to our preferred constituency, which is the middle class, right? We want you to subsidize buying mortgages in these specific uh, geographic areas, right? Let's, let's redline around these. We don't like these neighborhoods. We like these neighborhoods. These neighborhoods have great credit. So let's funnel money to, hey, okay, it's purely coincidental that these people vote for us, right? That's just, that's neither here nor there. Uh, we, we want credit to go towards those people for good reasons, not because they voted for us. And that's just like how the system has evolved. And so I think that, it reimagining, okay, how will this happen under a post-hyper-Bitcoinization? How does this happen with Bitcoin? Oh, well, now we've removed this little mechanism by which people can create new money. And, you know, people create new money in Bitcoin, but it just it gets burnt into fossil fuels. Okay, we can debate that part, but it's still far less political than how new money gets created in the fiat system. And then uh, I, I can let how new money gets created in the Ethereum system to maybe a different uh, debate. Pierre, I actually think this is a perfect place to transition back into something that we wanted to talk about at the beginning, which is you have really been on this shtick about exposing the racism of the current system. And you've been like blatantly saying like USD is racist. Uh, USD has been causing all of these things that have been hurting people for years. Can you kind of dive down that? I know you kind of outlined a little bit with the redlining and the entrenchment, but can you talk a little bit more about that idea? Uh, Something I don't want is for people to think that I'm just taking this like topical news item and exploiting it for purposes of shilling Bitcoin. Um, I actually... I, I do legitimately think that there's an argument to be made here. Uh, and I'm not just talking my book and, and taking advantage of someone's, uh, you know, uh, untimely death uh, and arguably murder uh, at the hands of the state uh, to, 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 to kind of push forward the Bitcoin agenda. But here's what I think is, is the case, is that uh, if you look at human history, um, you know, it is a fact that uh, European White settlers in North America imported uh, black slaves in large amounts. And that this went on for, I think it's like 150 years or 200 years, so a significant period of time 
uh, is, is, when you think about it from a macro perspective, and that uh, when these uh, slaves arrived to uh, the colonies, they were really at the bottom of the, the the hierarchical pyramid in terms of who has power in these societies. Uh, you know, they, it's, it's kind of it's almost uh, a tautology to say that slaves have the least power in in a in a society. Now, I don't want to I don't want to either I don't want to take away their their agency and their power and like slave revolts did happen and and I do think that um you know that there's something to be said for that and slave revolts unfortunately there were not enough. Like I think that it would have been a good thing if there had been more slave revolts. Um, maybe there were not enough because the the power differential, you know, in terms of how well armed uh, one group was versus the other, you know, just didn't allow for it. Um, but in any case, I think that there there were enough uh, liberals in in the classical liberal sense, abolitionists, to 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 eventually bring an end to to this barbaric practice of uh, treating other human beings as property. Uh, which is, you know, antithetical to like what the stated uh, reasons for founding this country were. And I also just think it's antithetical to like natural law and, and to even like my, my own libertarian ideology of, of the non-aggression principle. And so in any case, when these slaves were liberated, it's not like they became first class citizens the next day. Like they, they continued to uh, be put down both using state violence, right? Um, so Jim Crow laws and, and whatnot, but also, uh, you know, through through the actions of private individuals who frankly had views that, I, I view them as disconnected from reality. Like, uh, and I think most people uh, do at this point where, you know, uh, if you talk with uh, black people, uh, you can, you most black people are, are awesome. You know, like, I, I don't think that's controversial in, in 2020. Back then, it was very controversial. And there was, I think, um, either like a real concern or uh, a fake concern based on their their desire to keep competition out, right? Like, uh, I think that there were actually a lot of poor white people who don't want to compete in the labor market with, with poor black people. And then also, there's a lot of uh, wealthy white people, white business owners who don't want black business owners to compete against them. And frankly, they don't want white business owners competing against them either. And so I, I, there actually, I think, should be more debate about how much of the equation is about uh, race specifically, right? Um, and how much of it is about uh, instrumentalizing race in order to try to minimize the, the 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 market surface area of like how many people are actually competing against you in the market. In any case, that's kind of a, a long tangent. But uh, what I want to get to is that during this historical process, there was also this thing going on on the monetary side of uh, white people creating a monetary system, right? And uh, if you look at who was in charge of the monetary system throughout uh, the 18th, uh, 19th, and 20th century uh, in the United States and in the colonies preceding the United States, this was a monetary system controlled by white people. And ultimately, I do think that it evolved to serve white people and their interests ahead of black people. I don't think that the monetary system was neutral. I don't think the monetary system to this day, I don't think that it, it was, you know, non-discriminatory uh, with regards to everyone. Um, and so 
now do I think it's because Jay Powell is like a disgusting racist and he hates black people. And like, if you actually, if you got him drunk that he would start saying the N word. No, I don't think that's the case at all. In fact, I think that if you, if you, if you brought Jay Powell back to, you know, 1860, he'd be an abolitionist, you know, like I, I do think that he is, is not that, is not that kind of person. <laughs> Uh, I don't think he would be a Klansman, uh, you know, uh, with the views he it's has It's too today, late, maybe. right? It's too late because the values of those white slave owners got instantiated in the monetary system from day one. Right. There's a huge amount of momentum. And then the rationalizations for why the institutions are structured their way shifted as well from like overt racism of like, well, we're trying to keep these people down. So, uh, you know, we're not going to lend to them and we're not going to open bank accounts for them. To like, well, you know, we're trying to manage our risk, right? We're trying to manage the credit risk here. And, uh, you know, th- these people have bad credit. They have no credit. They don't have any credit history. It's not, it's not that like, like we would love to lend to them uh, based on their skin color, right? Like we don't have any problems there. It's just when you look at the credit risk, like here's this and that. And if you look at it, it's like, well, okay, why do they have bad credit or why do they have no credit? Oh, well, it's because they didn't, they didn't have generations of access to credit leading up to this point. Right. Um, and I, I actually do think that when, when, when leftists, let's, let's call it what it is, say, you know, rich people get richer and poor people get poorer. I actually do think it's because of historical access to the credit system where uh, the, the sooner you had access to uh, this inflationary system, the sooner you start accruing political power and financial capital that, and you know, you've got a brokerage account, you can go invest in stocks, you've got bonds, you're able to keep ahead of inflation. You're able to, you know, you've got money market funds. Like the sooner you have access to all of this, the sooner you can start uh, st- uh, build, building up wealth. Right. And to capture um, it, to capture right. the system. And what, it, what everyone starts with in terms of their access to the financial system is holding cash, right? It's, it's literally, that's, uh, and, and that's what's getting punished the most in the system. This, the sooner you get out of cash and into, uh, into investments, uh, the, the, the sooner you can start protecting your wealth from inflation and building up wealth. Black people, poor black people, poor white people, the first liquid store of value they have access to is USD and it's physical cash. And then eventually maybe a bank account, a checking account, and then eventually maybe a brokerage account or, but I actually, the way I see it is the the moment you have access to a physical cash or a checking account, that's going to allow you to start squirreling away cash and, and building up a cash balance. So that first of all, you're able to deal with negative uncertain cash flows, right? but also positive ones of starting your own business. And so you actually don't even need access to um, the capital markets and and you don't need to invest in someone else's business if you can invest in your own business. Um, And uh, ultimately, like that's that's to me the the path out of poverty is that you start by uh, saving cash. Uh, It's not, the path out of poverty does not start with 401k contributions, uh, you know, to uh, finance uh, white people's businesses. Um, And so that's where I I do think that there's a huge amount of overlap between what uh, gets called social justice, blah, blah, blah. And what I think, like in terms of actual solutions, right, for, 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 for these demographics, actual solutions of building up wealth 
wealth is what allows you to buy politicians, right? Then once you've built up wealth, well, now you're able to uh, finance uh, campaigns uh, the way uh, white people do. <laughs> let's let's face it. I, I do think that if we fix the cash, if we fix the money, we fix the world. This is a prime example. This 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 inequality where white people have captured central banks, right? And uh, they're they're using central banks to their advantage. If we remove that advantage, I do think that we would have uh, less inequality, and then we would have less social unrest. Uh, and uh, that's my spiel on it, I guess. Pierre, that was absolutely fantastic. Uh, and and I do applaud you. And I, I really, uh, when after, I don't know if you noticed, but I got pepper sprayed a couple of weeks ago by by a police officer. And then all of a sudden I became quote unquote woke because as soon as the, the police officers start using their militarism against white people, like, well, I think that's actually going to be the fastest way for for white people to actually understand how this system has been created and when we see individual police officers with thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of personal riot equipment uh, that was funded by the state in order to protect the money printer, all of a sudden these, the, for me at least, these pieces came together. Um, so yeah, um, something ahead. I've I've noticed uh, since my time on this planet has. Uh, so in France, there's a lot more protesting that goes on in the U.S. So mm-hmm. uh, let's let's put that out there. And so I I I, I have spent. Um, I guess a third of my life in France now. And during that time, I remember there were two big protests uh, that that I saw. Um, One was against a nanotechnology research center. And so these were the same people. So I already knew about Antifa long before uh, Americans knew about Antifa, it feels like. Because in France, it was just like, yeah, Antifa. I think they're from Germany originally. And so they they would hop on their train They'd hop on their TGV, they'd come to your city. And so in my case, it was Grenoble, where in Grenoble, they were building this nanotechnology center. And so we had Antifa from all across the, uh, the European Union uh, come down to uh, Grenoble and, and, and picket in front of this nanotechnology research center. And, you know, of, of course, there are violent elements to it, right? The uh, people who want to take advantage of the fact that there's a large crowd and at the margin, at the fringe, they'll be able to get away with property damage. Um, so I, I saw police deal with it and, you know, they arrest the people. And there's there's a finite number of those people. So you just you, you get them out of the protest and and then the protest just happens peacefully and there really mm-hmm. aren't issues mm-hmm. after that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that um, what and so I think that that was the same pattern here in the U.S. with with these uh, protests. There's two crucial uh, different elements to it. One is that the protests are about the police themselves. So like in France, it was (laughs) about, uh, well, the first protest I saw was about this nanotechnology center. So like the police don't give a flying SF about it because the the policy proposals being discussed are completely unrelated to the police. And they're just there to just like, all right, whatever. Like we we don't care about nanotechnology either way, frankly. So the second protest was about, um, uh, high school policy, right? So uh, it, it was this education minister nobody liked, yada, yada, yada. So the high schoolers were protesting. Again, the police did not have a dog in this fight. They didn't care about, uh, so like, okay, if, if high schoolers light trash cans on fire, to the police, it's like, whatever, you know, that's probably bad for air pollution. So we'll make sure that the, the firemen can put it out, but it, we're not going to arrest anyone over lighting a trash can on fire. Um, 
but in the U.S., the the protests are about the police themselves, and so I think that the attitude is much different. Where uh, the the policy demands are like, first of all, you know, as extreme as defund the police. So you're literally saying fire this person, like literally put them out of a job. And these are people with mortgages and kids like uh, that they're trying to put through school. So like, and, and this is a really cushy job from a, you know, just getting money perspective, right. With a pension attached to it. And they're like, uh, so I think that their calculus, part of it is like, fuck you guys. Like uh, I, how dare you <laughs> ask for me to get fired? Like you're trying to, uh, you know, this is like cancel culture run amok. Mm-hmm. And um, then I also think that, if you put yourself in the police officer's shoes, quite a few of these police officers, when they look at their career with the police, uh, they have countless instances that they could point to of, here's how I fucking helped the community. Like, here's how I helped this person. This person was in a terribly dangerous situation for whatever reason, and I pulled up in my squad car, and I helped them out, and I did my job. Like, why are you guys out in the streets right now when that is my lived experience, right? And this well, I would police say they, officer, they, they might be in a precinct where, frankly, like, there is little, there was very little police brutality going on. They right. might just police white neighborhoods. So from their perspective, mm-hmm. it's like, I've never been racist. It's like, yeah, because you don't have any black people that you're patrolling around. <laughs> you're just patrolling around. Of course, you've never been racist because the only black family you uh, police is like this middle class black family that, that you know, uh, is totally innocuous to you. And the dad wears a polo. You know, he doesn't <laughs> wear a hoodie. OK, whatever. Like, all right, all right you're not racist. Sure. But yeah. then for you to like come into this, frankly, I think part of it is the lack of decentralization, right? Where you have police officers and they go into this urban environment in their riot gear and they're like, oh, th- this is this is an out of control situation, first of all, because they've never seen this before, right? Um, they've never, in, in France, it's like, in France, they've seen much worse than what they saw in, in my hometown. Like mm-hmm. well, to them, this was like a total cakewalk in France. And um, if, if the French police, uh, you know, were, were de- now, I don't want to overly praise the French police because the French police also have had a checkered past with protesters, have, uh, you know, um, prov- provocateurs who uh, the French police will like incite violence and, and then crack down on it. So like lots of the same patterns have definitely occurred in France. I don't want to hold, put them on a pedestal or anything, but I just mean that a lot of police officers show up for protests and they've never seen like a peaceful protest before. And they've never seen a peaceful protest where in addition to a peaceful protest, there's also rioting and looting going on. Mm-hmm. And so they have to be in a situation where, okay, we've got to disambiguate from uh, peaceful protesters, uh, uh, rioters who are Antifa, who are trying to cause property damage and looters who are trying to steal shit. Mm-hmm. So there, it's like three different demographics, different motives, completely different operating procedures. and you have to treat them completely differently. And I think that um, the, it's, it's, it's hard for police to treat them differently when the peaceful protesters are protesting against the police. Because now from the police's perspective, it's like all three of you are agents of chaos. Right. All three of you are trying have to a, have an aggressive harm. stance against us. Yeah. And all three of you need to be repressed with tremendous violence and force mm-hmm. so that we can reestablish law and order in this area. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's, uh, I think it's a total shit show, even 
from the perspective of the police trying to figure out what to do, right? So um, you see you see the whole spectrum of like some police get it and they're like, mm-hmm. you know what, this is a peaceful protest and they're right. Like police brutality is bad. Mm-hmm. We as the police are opposed to police brutality uh, and we want law and order for everyone. We don't want to be above the law. Uh, and so we're going to join this protest and we want to deescalate this. Like we don't want this to to get worse. We don't mm-hmm. want to brutalize people more. That's what they're protesting against. If we brutalize mm-hmm. them more, we'll just get more protests. Right. So there's that part. And then there's also like police who understand like, oh, th- these these people have been cooped up for a few months because <laughs> of coronavirus. So let's like, let's give them some space. You know, like we don't need to clear them out of the park right now. It's okay if they protest all night. You know, like that's fine. We don't mm-hmm. need to impose this curfew on peaceful protesters. You know, and and we'll we'll figure out how to deal with the looters and and the 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 rioters, the you know the the Antifa you know property mm-hmm. damagers, uh, as a separate issue from the peaceful protesters. Um, but that's rare. So far, it's been like you know it, it's been uh, martial law and like oh we need to bring in the national guard mm-hmm. and we need to uh, pepperball everyone. We need to mace everyone. Uh, Have you heard what's and- happened in Capitol Hill in Seattle? Yeah. And so now, now you have these like, yeah, crazy situations where the police just staying out of areas. Left. They're gone. Yeah. And, and I don't think, I don't think that's the answer no, either. That's, that's there. There's a short timer on that one. Yeah. I think that before you know it, they're going to need uh, policing services. Yeah. Now, uh-huh. if they were smart, they'd figure out. So uh, one of the problems with doing uh, private security, right. Where like, all right, well, what's the, what's the real answer to, to, to this current situation? Um, my, my view is that uh, we, if you want to have it be an orderly transition, um, we do have to figure out how to make it so that the police actually only deal with private security guards and the police are uh, the public police, the government's police, as I call them. Uh, their whole thing is, we 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 try to make sure that uh private security guards don't get out of control mm. and they're they're policing the police essentially because right. that's always the thing right, right? who's going to police the police well i think we need to have a hierarchical system where the middle layer is all it's just privately owned everything and you can start your own private security firm you know it, it, you don't have to apply for a license or anything either <laughs> so you, you can do whatever you want now the problem is that uh, people can sue you, uh, right. and the police can arrest you. So if you start getting out of control, then the government's police will get mm-hmm. called. Mm-hmm. Um, but so if you, you know, I think that that would be a viable system in terms of figuring out, all right, how do we have some balance here um, between the, 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 and how do we create some space between civil society and the government's police? Because mm-hmm. ultimately it is bizarre that you would have, the person who is kind of, if you think about the hierarchy of violence, right, who, who can legitimately use violence uh, the most is, is this government police officer. Um, and um, although you could argue the military is kind of above that even. If you think about the weaponry they have at their mm-hmm. disposal, the amount of violence they can inflict. Um, you know, they're the only ones who, can, who are allowed to nuke cities. Uh, everyone else has to make do with uh, assault rifles. <laughs> um, but uh, in any case, um, why is that person pulling you over on the street for speeding? You mm-hmm. know, like that's, 
that's a little extreme because that person is literally carrying a gun. Now, um, we, we may have a problem in society where we have so much crime that even a private security guard would also have to carry a gun if they are pulling you over on a privately owned road for violating the terms of service of going too fast, right? Um, mm. that, that you agreed to when you uh, paid the toll. Um, that, that person might also have to carry a gun. But ultimately, if you think about the range of actions that they can take, um, it's far more limited than what a, a government law enforcement officer can do on a government-owned road, right? If you think about those two legal scenarios of what can these two different individuals get away with in terms of the spectrum of their actions, under current law, it's a very wide gap, right? So the the government law enforcement officer... Uh, for any number of reasons could kill you. So they could just shoot you and, and, and that's, and, and then they would have some form of immunity uh, from doing that, or just they, they wouldn't even get prosecuted just at prosecutorial discretion. The, the private security guard who was privately employed, who's not an agent to the state and who, you know, who shoots you. Well, they, they are under tremendous amount of liability, right? So, uh, at the very least, they might be, you know, uh, manslaughter charges, right? Uh, it, and there would be an, a tremendous amount of scrutiny. Uh, and the, the criminal and civil process for them would be far, uh, ha- ha- carry a far wider range of outcomes to the downside. And in terms of the probability distribution, the weighting is also far further on the downside if they kill you. Um, the ideal scenario for them is that they escort you off the property, right? That's, that's their ultimate goal is the private security guard is that they're trying to get you off of this private property because they don't want to deal with you and they don't want to kill you. They don't want to injure you. They literally just want you off the property. So, you know, what would, uh, what, what, what does road policing look like in a private security system at scale it might literally be that a quadcopter comes and picks you up and removes you from the road and moves you somewhere else. You, and so if you're a violent criminal, you know, and you're just like, you could start shooting at the helicopter and, uh, or the quadcopter and uh, ideally it's autonomous. So there's no human life at risk, even if you're shooting at it. Um, but the, you know, they're going to try to disable your firearm. They're going to remove your firearm. And their whole goal is to not harm or kill you because they don't want any kind of liability, right? Mm-hmm. It can only increase the liability if they injure you. Uh, they're, they're trying to uh, subdue Peaceful you and remove you. you from the property yeah. with minimal mm-hmm. damage for everyone right. involved. Right. The, the government's police doesn't have that attitude. Like their approach is like, let's blow them up. Let's just send a let's send a UAV and let's drop a missile on them. I, and that's I, what they I, do. I, that's literally what they do. That's their approach to enforcing law I saw when, a video. when they don't have any uh, when they don't have any voters to be accountable to. If, saw- if Yemen and uh, Afghan uh, and Iraqi people were able to vote for, you know, representation, uh, mm-hmm. then we wouldn't be droning them. Uh, but or if if Texas was not allowed to vote. Right. The federal government would drone people in Texas, um, arguably Waco. But let's put that aside for now. 
So Sorry, I think that was probably the best explanation of private police I've heard uh, by far. <laughs> I, I haven't really fully fleshed that idea in my head, but now I, I feel at least I have a framework. So thank you for mm-hmm. that. And I mean, ultimately, I think that this was a very enlightening conversation. And I appreciate you coming on, Pierre, to kind of like break down some of these really tough subjects in general. We're kind of getting to the end of our time here. Yeah, and I feel like we haven't talked about Bitcoin yet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we touched on it a little bit at the beginning, but um, I'm, kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah, I mean, yeah. let's uh, let's 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 wrap it up. Uh, if you have any last words for our audience, what would it be? And uh, for those interested in learning more about these ideas, uh, where can they find you? Uh, so you can find me on Twitter at Pierre P I E R R E underscore Rochard R O C H A R D. Um, D is in Dogecoin. And uh, you can, uh, all of my thoughts, I, I generally post them there. Uh, you can also DM me. My DMs are open on Twitter. Um, and uh, if you want, um, you know, I can, I can give you my phone number uh, through DM if you want to slide into my DMs and, and talk about Bitcoin. Or, or policing. If, you, if you're actually interested in uh, policing, I can also talk about policing. Sounds uh, good. All right. Thanks, Pierre, for, for coming on POV Crypto. Your, your understanding of Ethereum is, is far greater than, than I uh, predicted it, that it would be. So uh, tip of the hat to you. Hey, sir. look, if, if, if they figure out fraud proofs, then uh, maybe that'll allow Bitcoin to scale. And uh, that, that would be good for everyone. But color me skeptical. <laughs> Sounds good. All right, guys, you can follow the podcast at POV Crypto Pod. You can follow me at Trustless State, both on Twitter and on Banklist. Christian? Yep, you can find me at CK underscore Snarks, as well as uh, doing a lot of shit for Bitcoin Magazine these days. So uh, always be showing and doing a lot of media. Thanks again, Pierre, and thanks for everyone who watched. Cheers. 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 Thanks, guys. Do you believe? Do you believe? Will you just see?